Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together. So we've been journeying through the book of Matthew together. And uh, the, ba- the book of Matthew is actually compiled into kind of five major teaching discourses. Um, most, most commentators will tell you that the book of Matthew has kind of five major sections to it. And this morning we come to the first of those five major sections. It's probably the most famous of the five. It's what we refer to as uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most wide-known sermon in human history. It's been called the greatest sermon of all time. And yet it's largely debated and misunderstood. Daniel Doriani, a theologian and professor, says regarding the sermon, among Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved, the best known, the least understood, and the hardest to obey. Its attraction is obvious. Right? Christians and non-Christians alike are familiar with many of Jesus' words in the sermon. Almost everybody could quote you at least one verse from the Sermon on the Mount. We all at least know, judge not, right? We like that one. But we're not sure what to do with the sermon if we're honest. In fact, historically, there have been all kinds of different approaches to how to interpret this sermon. I want to highlight at least four approaches this morning. The first approach is the social blueprint approach, the code of ethics approach. This is popular among uh, more theologically liberal traditions where they love to see Jesus as a social reformer, that Jesus came in to kind of teach us societal ethics, to show us a way to live. When I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks, and I remember having a conversation with a coworker named David. We were talking about Jesus, and, and David said, he said, man, I love the ethics of Jesus. I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's great. I think it's amazing teaching. And I was like, really? That's interesting, because the Jesus who uttered those words also said that he was the son of God. What do you think about that? He didn't know what to do with that question. The problem with viewing the Sermon on the Mount merely as a code of ethics is that it it sort of tries to remove the sermon out of its context in Matthew. Just tries to lift it out of the book as a whole. In the same gospel that gives us the Sermon on the Mount, climaxes right with the same Jesus teaching these words, dying on a cross for our sins and rising from the dead. Right? And so, so to take the Sermon on the Mount in isolation out of the rest of the narrative is, as Bob Thune puts it, to do violence to the text that's been given to us. We, we can't just lift these words out of their context. It's more than a social blueprint. A second approach uh, that came along really in the, the Middle Ages is, is kind of a two-tiered Christianity approach. In the Middle Ages, some began to argue that only the monks were required to obey the higher spiritual teachings of the Bible. And certainly the Sermon on the Mount fell in that category. And so the rest of us ordinary folk need not pay attention to anything other than the basic precepts. And so they kind of created this two-tiered system where the monks had to do all of it and us normal folks just had to do part of it. In other words, much of what the Sermon on the Mount teaches doesn't actually apply to anyone other than the priests and the monks. 
Related to this view is this idea that Jesus was actually teaching about a future millennial kingdom that's coming somewhere in the future. That he was pointing us forward to a future reality, not a, not a present reality. And so what this means is that it doesn't apply to us in the here and now. Now, I think some of us kind of wish this were true. It would sort of let us off the hook. But the problem is, do you remember last week, what we saw at the end of chapter 4 is that Jesus launches his ministry declaring what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's not in the future. It's, it's here now. Right? And he's calling not just a select few. No, he's calling disciples, but he's calling everyone who will listen to heed his words and to follow them. It's not a future kingdom for a select few, but it's a present kingdom for all. Jesus, if, if we lower the bar on what Jesus is declaring here, we actually run the risk of defying the king of the kingdom. Now, in light of this, the Anabaptists came along and they said, well, then that means we have to interpret this sermon strictly and literally. And so the Anabaptists took a very literal approach to the sermon. When it says no oaths, let your yes be yes. When it said to turn the other cheek, well, we have to practice passivism. When it says to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin, what it's telling you is you better take strict severity in dealing with your sin. They took the sermon literally. And of course, the danger of this approach is that we become legalists. That we begin to view the Sermon on the Mount as entrance requirements for getting into the kingdom. And when we go this route, we actually become anti-gospel legalists doing the exact thing that the Apostle Paul told us not to do. Right? We don't obey these things to earn God's favor. We don't keep these rules to get into the kingdom. In reaction to this approach, Martin Luther said that the sermon is actually aimed at exposing our complete inability to keep it at all. This is the impossible ideal approach. Luther said that the standard of the sermon is set so high that it casts us upon grace, that it exposes our, our, our inability to keep them. That, that the impossibly high demands of the sermon are meant to make us aware of our sin, to crush us, and to turn us to Christ in faith. In other words, the, the sermon holds up a mirror to us. And it says, you see yourself? You could never do this. Look to Jesus. Now certainly, there's an aspect of that that is true, right? I mean... Any honest person who's reading the sermon doesn't walk away from it going, crushing it. <laughs> if, 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 if you read the Sermon on the Mount and that's your takeaway, I would love to talk with you. I just need to meet you. But the question, I think, for Luther's approach is, is that the only purpose of the sermon? Is, is that all that Jesus is after when he preaches it, simply to to expose our inability, or is more going on? Theologian D.A. Carson, he says this. He says, he says, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now, he's way smarter than all of us, and he's French-Canadian. I don't know why that matters. But I think what he's saying is this. I think what he's saying is this. 
He's saying that if, if, you, if you extract a passage out of its native context, then you can pretty much make it mean whatever you want it to mean. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You can make a text really mean whatever you want it to mean if you pull it out of its native context. And so the best way to find the actual meaning is to discover how it's situated in its native setting. And so to truly understand the Sermon on the Mount, we need to situate ourselves in Matthew's gospel, in the unfolding story of Jesus that he's been telling us. And so if you'll allow me, I'd like to go back for just a minute and to see the unfolding story of Jesus that's been happening up to this moment. If you recall, after Jesus' birth, we're told that these stargazers, these magi from the east saw this star and they interpreted that star as the demarcation of a new king that had been born. And so they traveled toward Israel to find this king. And when Herod hears about it, he gets nervous because he was the Jewish king. He didn't want any rival kings. And so he he pulls these magi in and he says, hey, when you find the child, would you come back and tell me so that I too can go and worship him? Herod has no intentions of worshiping Jesus. He has intentions of killing Jesus. And the magi are warned in a dream not to go back by way of Herod, but to go home another route. And when Herod learns of this, he's furious. Thankfully, an angel appears to Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, and tells them to flee to Egypt. And so Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they, they flee to Egypt until Herod dies. And during this time, before Herod passes away, we learn that Herod begins to slaughter the innocent Hebrew children in hopes of killing this Jewish Messiah king. Until finally Herod passes away. And Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill. And then Jesus and Joseph were told in another dream to return. And Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Jesus returns out of Egypt like the people of Israel. He's called out of Egypt. And then in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John. Now, if you'll recall, the people of God in Exodus were called out of Egypt through what? The Red Sea. They pass out of Egypt through the waters. The waters miraculously split in two so the people could pass through. And at his baptism, the waters aren't rent rent open, but the heavens are rent open. And the Father speaks over Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then as soon as Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, do you remember where he goes? Straight into the wilderness, just like Israel, where he's tested for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel who was tested for 40 years. Matthew is telling us a story of Jesus that parallels the story of Israel, who in the Old Testament is called God's son. The difference is that Israel failed the test in the wilderness. We saw this as we looked at Jesus being tested and tried. That when they were tested, they grumbled against the Lord. Jesus said, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. He submits to the will of the Father. He submits to the promises of God. He trusts in God's word. 
He passes the test. He's the greater son. He's the greater Israel. And then as we get to the end of chapter 4 here, it tells us that after passing through the waters of baptism, through the testing of the wilderness, that he came to a mountain. And he ascends the mountain. And he sits down and he begins to teach his disciples. It's significant that in the original language, it doesn't just say that Jesus went up a mountain, but it says that he went up the mountain. This is recalling the language in Exodus when Moses went up the mountain and he received the word of God. And here is Jesus, the greater Israel, the greater Moses, ascending the mountain of God. And he begins to say, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, Moses received the law of God, and now Jesus is going to give the true interpretation of it. He's going to give us the fulfillment of the very law of God. The people had been waiting for another Moses to come. Deuteronomy 18 had prophesied that there will come from among you one like unto me. That's what Moses had told them. In other words, there's, someday there's going to be another prophet like me who shows up. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and there was never another prophet like Moses. Elijah was great, but he wasn't like Moses. Elisha was greater, but he wasn't like Moses. And then Jesus shows up. This, by the way, is why the crowds in John chapter 6, when Jesus takes some barley biscuits and some sardines and multiplies them to feed this this massive crowd. That's my interpretation of the feeding of the (laughs) 5,000. Do you remember what the people say in John 6? This is the prophet who is to come. There was, there, was actually, there was actually Jewish teaching that had said that when, when this one like Moses came, that the manna from the wilderness would return. And now here Jesus is out in a Judean wilderness, and, and he begins to multiply bread and feed thousands. And they go, this is him. And so here is Jesus who comes like Moses, ascends the mountain, sits down in this rabbinical posture, this posture of authority, and he begins to teach. He begins to unpack what the law of God actually means. And so what I'm telling you is that when we situate the Sermon on the Mount in its context, in the story that Matthew is telling us about Jesus, what he's telling us is Jesus is a new Moses who comes to fulfill what was promised in the Old Testament. He comes as a deliverer who brings with him the promise of truly leading God's people out of bondage and into God's blessing. Isn't this what the people were waiting on? Isn't this what they wanted? What the people in the first century were hoping for and looking for and waiting for was for God to rescue them and to restore the world to what it was like before sin ever entered in. They were longing for God's kingdom. This is why when Jesus shows up and he begins to say, the kingdom of heaven is near. This was radical language. This was scandalous language. This is eschatological language. It's it's future time promise language where he's going, I'm the one. I'm here. It's time, y'all. It's time. The restoration of Eden, the promise of happiness and flourishing. Jesus appears on the scene announcing that the kingdom has come. 
Last week we saw that Jesus was proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom and calling people to be his disciples. He's teaching and he's healing and and crowds are beginning to follow him. And within those crowds, think about who's there present on this mountain. Within those crowds, some are intrigued and curious. Others had just been delivered of epilepsy or a disease or just had a demon cast out of them. And there were some who had even made the decision that they were going to follow this Jesus as the Messiah. And so this crowd is gathered around Jesus, his disciples sitting at his feet, and he begins to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount is about what God's kingdom is like. It's what it's like to experience the rule and the reign of God over your life and over the world. It's about actively experiencing God's favor and his blessing and his direction. It's it's a life submitted to King Jesus. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of. I think Eugene Peterson really captures the heart of the sermon well as he describes how the Bible works. Peterson says this. He says, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you'll live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made, God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. The Bible invites us into a way of life. It invites us into a way of seeing the world and living in the world as followers of Messiah Jesus. And that's what Jesus is offering in this sermon. He's showing us what it means to truly be human, what it means to truly live under God's rule and his reign. And he's inviting us in. He's saying, hey, live into this way of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're only going to look at the first few verses of this sermon. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. Jesus begins this sermon, this depiction of the kingdom, this invitation into living into this way of life this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The first word out of Jesus' mouth as he begins this sermon is the Greek word makarioi. Blessed. I'll be honest with you, I don't know what to do with that word because... I grew up in the South, and when you used that word, you were very nicely calling someone an idiot. Well, bless his heart. That is not how Jesus is using this word. This word conveys the idea of flourishing. It's a state of happiness. This is wisdom language. It's a way of life that leads to wholeness. Think about Psalm 1. We're familiar with Psalm 1. It starts the same way. How blessed, how happy is the one 
who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. The psalmist is saying, man, flourishing, blessed is the one who doesn't associate with idiots but delights in the word of God. Blessing statements like this were a rich part of of the Jewish tradition. This wasn't something new that Jesus invented. Jesus is preaching about the good life. He's saying, hey, I want to teach you a way to live, and I want to show you a path that leads to life, a way that leads to wholeness. Let me tell you what God's kingdom is like. Let me tell you what it's like to live under the rule and the reign of God. Jonathan Pennington explains that Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing both now and in the age to come. But what's unique about Jesus' teaching is who he says is blessed. How one comes to experience the blessing of God. Now we might expect Macarioi statements like this. Blessed are those who are without worries and troubles. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who cheer for the chiefs. John Calvin observed that most people hold to the belief that the happy person is the one who is free from annoyance, attains all his wishes, and leads a joyful and easy life. In other words, true happiness is about our present emotional state. That's what we tend to think. That that the blessed life, hashtag blessed, right? That the flourishing life is the one where you're freed from annoyances and you have everything you want and life is easy. And yet Jesus begins to proclaim a very different picture of the good life. His words are confounding and shocking because he proclaims that God's blessing includes many things that we would naturally and even vehemently seek to avoid. Scholar Tim Mackey tells about going to an exhibit in Portland by artists Tim Noble and Sue Webster. And he said, this art exhibit was a series of rooms. And, and, and when you walked into a room, with each room, there would be what initially appeared to just be a random pile of junk and rubbish. He's like, oh, it's one of these exhibits, right? But then he said, all of a sudden, they would throw on a spotlight. And from a certain angle, when the spotlight hit that pile of rubbish, it would cast a shadow on the wall, and it would create this beautiful silhouette. And so the first one was this just random collection of, of, of beer bottles and Coke cans just all piled on a table. And when you threw the, the spotlight onto the collection of cans and bottles, it created a silhouette of New York City on the wall. And in the next room, you'd go in, and it just looks like piles of trash. And when you throw the light on it, it was two people laying there and so on. 
Mackey describes the exhibit this way. He says, these works are all about surprise and the reversal of your perception. What you thought was things that were discarded, what you thought was chaos or trash or garbage from a certain angle. And when the light shines upon it, that trash becomes a vehicle of beauty and meaning and significance. And Mackey compares that to what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. On the surface, you look at someone who is poor in spirit. You look at someone who is in that condition and you go, man, this is just a bunch of chaos and rubbish. Jesus says, if you have eyes to see, if you'll let the light shine through this and you'll look beyond it, it's beautiful. It's flourishing. This is the way to life. To be poor in spirit means that you are vividly aware of your emptiness. Poorness of spirit is bankruptcy. It's not just a theoretical concept of sin. We're good at that, aren't we? We're real good at that in accountability groups. Oh, yeah, me too, man. I'm a sinner. Yeah. All right. Big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. (laughs) Insider joke. (laughs) To be be poor in spirit is to actually know the stench of your rebellion. it's, It's a full awareness of just how messed up you are. I want you to think about King David in the moments right after the prophet Nathan looks at him and says, David, you're the man. And it washes over him. And David knows he has nowhere to run and he can't hide. He's been found out. He is seen. He is exposed. That's poorness of spirit. Have you ever found yourself staring at your sins so squarely in the eyes that you can no longer suppress it, you can no longer deny it, you can't lie your way out of it, it's there. Jesus says, if you've come to that place, you're blessed. Blessed are the self-aware sinners, the ones who can't hide any longer from their depravity. Not too long ago, a famous person was being asked about his faith. And as part of that conversation, he was asked if he ever asked God for forgiveness. His answer? I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so, he said. I think if I do something wrong, I I just try and make it right. I don't bring God God into that picture. And and this is the epitome of what the culture teaches us to do, right? Don't admit weakness. Just do better. Just try harder. Pretend and perform your way forward. Project an image that convinces everyone that you're doing better than you really are. And Jesus says the real path to flourishing is just the opposite. 
It's to come to a place of admitting your need. It's to lay aside your pride. You're blessed if you're broken. You're blessed if you know that you don't have what it takes. You're blessed if your weakness is so in your face that you can't hide from it. You're blessed when you come to a place of admitting your poverty and it crushes you. And this leads into the next beatitude. You're blessed not only if you're poor in spirit, but broken by the state of it. You're blessed if you mourn. Jesus pronounces his blessing over those who weep over their weakness and their sinfulness. Hear it with fresh ears. Happy are the criers. What a weird statement. Happy are the criers. The ones who are sad over the state of their heart and over the state of the world. Blessed are those who mourn not only over their sins, but the sins of their brothers. Those who weep over the brokenness of the city. Jesus says you're actually blessed and you're on the road to flourishing if you find yourself there. Jesus says, you're not blessed when you put your blinders on and pretend like everything is a-okay. It's not when you ignore the state of your own life, the state of the nation or of the world. You're actually blessed when those things drive you to cry out to God. In other words, what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as he starts his sermon is that true wholeness is not some form of don't worry, be happy. That the way of the kingdom is not name it and claim it. It's not your best life now. That wholeness is actually found in lament when we bring our brokenness before the Lord. It's found in grieving your sin in the state of things. In a world telling us to medicate and to placate, Jesus says it's far better to mourn over your sin than to be indifferent to it. To be honest about things. To be honest about your inability to fix it. Our society, doesn't it? It admires self-reliance. It admires self-confidence. It it holds up the self-made man, the self-made woman, the put-together person, the person that's polished, the person that's independent. They can do it on their own. And Jesus says, "Blessed, blessed are the meek. Meekness is the absence of self-absorption. It's the opposite of self-help. It's humility. That's why I think Tim Keller's right when he says the gospel, if the gospel is true, it is not the good people who are in and the bad who are out. It's not the open-minded and tolerant who are in and the bigoted who are out. Rather, it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves who have given up on man-made strategies and self-help books. Blessed are those who know they hold no equity stake in the kingdom of man and who know they can't win at the game of life. When you see your sin for what it is and you're broken by it and you're humbled away from trying to fix things yourself and you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're blessed, Jesus is saying, when you find yourself in a place of asking God for a righteousness that you know you don't inherently possess. 
When you're at a place before the world of going, I don't have what it takes, God. I don't have the goods. I ain't got it. I need you to do something in me that I can't do in myself. I need you to produce something in me that I can't produce from within. You got to do it, God, because I ain't got it. When you find yourself praying, God, create in me a clean heart and renew within me a steadfast spirit, Jesus says, you're on the road to flourishing. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. What are the preconditions of receiving from the Lord? You got to know you're empty. You got to know you don't have money. And you got to come. You you have to admit your thirst and then you have to come with your hands up. See, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's a paradox that requires the light of God to shine through the mess and to cast a shadow of illumination to help you see that the way up is down. And isn't this what we see in the life of Jesus himself? These verses not only picture the way of the kingdom, they point us to the king of the kingdom. Doriani says, we must see the Beatitudes as a multifaceted description of a whole person. They are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. And more than that, they portray the heart of the king. When you look close at these Beatitudes... Who do you see? Tim Mackey asks, can you think of somebody who came from poor, insignificant circumstances? Who mourned and grieved over the state of this world and over the people that he met? And longed to see this world set right? Beatitudes are a portrait of Jesus. Though he wasn't poor in spirit due to his own sin, yet he entered into our brokenness. We saw this at his baptism, right? Jesus said that he had to come to fulfill all righteousness. He wasn't baptized repenting of his own sin, but he was immersed into our brokenness. He was immersed into our fallenness. He fully entered into our poorness of spirit. And though existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself and took on the likeness of humanity and taking on that likeness when he had come as a man he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross so that he could forgive our sins and give us his righteousness we see Jesus here don't we we see Jesus in these beatitudes and so what this means is that the beatitudes are also an invitation to us to enter into the life of Christ with him Jesus would later tell his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The apostle Paul would put it this way. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The the Beatitudes are an invitation for us to participate in the life of Jesus and to experience his presence. 
We find Jesus in our poorness of spirit. We find Jesus in confessing and in grieving our sin. We find Jesus in meekness and lowliness. We find Jesus in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so even if that kind of a life is marked with suffering, which is what Jesus is telling us, right? I mean, Brett's going to get to it next week, but these Beatitudes climax with blessed are the persecuted. But listen to me, even if this kind of kingdom life is marked with suffering, what Jesus is telling us is it actually leads to wholeness because he's with us. The flourishing life is not life absent of conflict. The flourishing life is the abiding presence of Jesus. How can you be poor in spirit and blessed? Well, because Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. How can you mourn and be blessed? Well, because as we read in our call to worship this morning in in Isaiah 61, that, that Jesus is the spirit anointed one who brings good news to the poor and binds up the brokenhearted and proclaims liberty to the captives and unshackles those who are bound and proclaims the the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to, to comfort all who mourn. And this leads to the last thing, which is that the Beatitudes are a promise of a great reversal that's coming one day. Jesus can say, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek because the way things currently appear and the way things will end up are not the same. We're living in the matrix. There's one more 90s movie reference for you. If we're honest, right now, It seems like the more accurate Beatitudes would be things like, blessed are those who have lots to boast about. Blessed are the ones who have enviable circumstances. Blessed are the powerful. But Jesus' Beatitudes point us forward to a coming day when the world will be turned right side up again. When God makes all things new, when he rescues and redeems his children, and on that day, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom. On that day, those who mourn in Zion will be comforted. And on that day, the humble, the meek, will inherit the earth. And in the Greek, that's literally the land. The promised land. And so even if on the surface it feels like you're not currently flourishing, if you're looking at your life and going, man, I don't know about this beatitudinal life. Even if it seems like you're losing, you are, in fact, more than a conqueror through him who loves you. And in the end, we win in Christ. And so based on that promise, Jesus says we can flourish even in our present hardship. We can see the silhouette of Christ's kingdom shining through the chaos and the rubbish. And so let the light of the gospel shine through these beatitudes. The way up is down. The way forward is in Christ.
And hope is found in the promise of a kingdom that's here and it's coming. Amen? Let's pray together.